Justin Lyon. Welcome to Summit Ridge Community Church. As many of you know, my name is Eric Birch. I'm one of the pastors here. And today is St. Valentine's Day. Now, you might wonder, why do we celebrate St. Valentine's Day, and why do we celebrate it on the 14th of February? Well, I will tell you. So there's several thoughts about why it got established, but we do know uh, that Pope Galatius I, in A.D. 496, set it up um, as a holiday uh, or as a as a, a uh, day of remembrance for Saint Valentine. Now, Saint Valentine, originally Valentine, he was a, uh, a, a priest in the Catholic Church. The uh, it starts out that Emperor Claudius the Cruel. How would you like that as a name? Um, <laughs> Claudius the Cruel was having an issue trying to get Roman men to volunteer for the army. Turns out these Roman men would rather spend time with their family, their wife and kids, than go to war. Imagine that. So this nice guy, Claudius the Cruel, decides he's going to ban marriage and relationships. That way they won't have any and therefore they have to go fight a war because there's nothing to do at home. So... Valentine, who's a priest, decides he's going to reject that idea, and in secret, he continues to perform marriages to people who want to get married. Of course, Claudius finds out about it, and poor Valentine gets beaten to death and then beheaded. Pretty romantic. Um, so the uh, legend has it that uh, while he was in jail, St. Valentine developed a friendship with the jailer's daughter, and as he was getting ready to go get executed, he left her a note from your Valentine. Um, and so 200 years or so later, this becomes, an, a, 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 he gets sainted, and it becomes an event in the Catholic Church. Uh, now, it's not associated with romantic love until about the 14th or 15th century. Again, rumor has it that that got started because there's an annual migration of lovebirds that shows up in England. And lovebirds are unique in that they're the smallest of parrots, but they also have a long-term monogamous relationship. So these two birds get together and they stay together for most of their lives, and they share the time in child raising. What do you ever call a baby bird? Anyway, chicks. Uh, so they take turns, but they both raise these these chicks. And so it became associated with this romance uh, in that time frame. But it wasn't until the 18th century that it actually started getting celebrated with heart-shaped cards and confections and flowers and all those wonderful things that we do today. So happy Valentine's Day to everybody, especially to my wife Donna, who is hopefully watching. Uh, thank you for the 34-plus years of putting up with me. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, again, enjoy your Valentine's Day. It's neat that it's on a weekend, right? So we actually can get to do something. All right. As you might imagine, that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. Uh, <laughs> so what we're, we're going to talk about is the, um, new beginnings. Uh, we decided as we're going to go into this new year, uh, we're going to really focus on new beginnings. And the thought here is, you know, the last couple of years have been, Interesting. Um, in fact, this year kind of started out interesting, too. But we're hoping, you know, it's going to smooth out a bit. Um, but we want to focus on new beginnings. And so we're going to be going through 
Uh, we're going through the book of Genesis now. We'll be continuing through some other books, and at the end of you will end up with the book of Revelation. I know a lot of people want to throw an S on the end of that. Now it's just one Revelation. Um, so we saw that the, uh, the created world was created in perfection. Everything was wonderful. Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything was wonderful. But then, not so bad, right? Adam and Eve just wanted to have that access to the tree. Boom, sin entered the world. And that started this whole continuous process. In fact, it got so bad, we saw how the interactions between fallen angels um, and the the women that were there created this sort of Nephilim, this, this middle character that just got so evil that God said, okay, that's it. Poof, I'm going to start over. Um, and so the um, God floods the world, puts eight people in a boat full of animals, floats them up, wipes out everything else, Boom, sets it back on ground, and off we go. The merciful, merciful and loving hand of God, round two. Um, now, the, uh, it might surprise you, but the rainbow does not belong to either the LGBT community or Skittles. Right? <laughs> God created the rainbow, and he did it to symbolize that he had taken the bow, which was the weapon of the time. Right? He took his bow and set it in the heavens to see after the storm. And we see this rainbow. And this rainbow is symbolic of the fact that God has created a covenant that he will never again destroy the world by flood. Right? So when you see that bow, think about it as, it's, it's, it's like the, the weapon, right? He's parked that weapon up there to remind us that he won't do that again. So now, he's got two of every kind of animals, Two canines, two felines, two porcine. Those are pigs for those. Um, he's got two of every kind and eight people, and he starts over. And he starts growing himself a new bunch. And it's interesting, too, because I, I read people say, well, there's not enough genetic diversity. This couldn't have happened. I'm like, guys, we're talking about God. There is no he couldn't in God, right? I mean, he did it the first time. He can do it again. I just get a kick out of it because we don't understand it. It can't be true. I don't think so. All right. So last week we saw Abram and the journey from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Ur is a city. So basically from the Chaldean city, he moves to the promised land. And he doesn't sit in the city. No, he pitches his tent up in the hills. He very intentionally chooses not to become part of the pagan environment that is in the cities and towns but instead to separate himself and to live in accordance to God by keeping himself separate and in the hills, right? So he makes that very conscious decision that he wants to have a life dependent on God um, and not uh, a pagan life that is surrounding him in the land that he's at. Now, he made this choice again as we look at some of the passages that we're going to go through today. So as we get ready to start here, we're going to have to kind of set the stage of what's going on. So the kings of the valley had lived under the control of King Shadalamar. It may not be pronounced right, but Dan always says just say it forcefully and everybody will believe it. So uh, King Shadalamar of Elam for 12 years. In the 13th year, they decide, okay, enough of this. I'm going to rebel. And so they decide that they're going to go 
have a war, and they make these groups of kings get together, and they go and decide to fight. Well, unfortunately, for the sides aligned with the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't go well. And Lot, Abram's nephew, gets captured along with all the women and kids and stuff. Um, so Abram, with 318 able men. Now, think of the numbers, right? we got four kingdoms fighting four kingdoms. They One side loses, and Abram, with only 318 men, go and win the battle. And it tells us, you know, he split his forces, you know, pretty tactical move, and, and, he, and, he, and he wins. Uh, and so he gets back Lot and the family and all the other stuff that this king, he has a really long name, it's hard to say, <laughs> Shedolomar, um, took. So we're going to pick up the story now in chapter 14, verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Shedolomar, and the kings who are with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their share." So after the battle, Abram is greeted by two kings, two very different kings, right? So we have Bera, who is the king of Sodom, and we have Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. Bera, of course, represents the worst. He's from Sodom. We all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we'll talk about that in a little bit here uh, a few weeks down the road, but Remember that it's like the, 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 the center of depravity. Um, and so the Bera, who's the king of Sodom, you know, Abram wants nothing to do with it. Now, Melchizedek, on the other hand, is a very different kind of king. Now, we don't know a lot about Melchizedek, right? He kind of just pops up in Scripture. And in Genesis, when you think about all the genealogies that are listed in Genesis, there is no genealogy for Melchizedek. We don't know much about him other than that he was um, the, the beginning of uh, the priestly order that God's created. Now, it's interesting, his name um, means, um, lost my place. so he's a, Melchizedek means righteousness, king of righteousness. Imagine that as a, as a name king of righteousness, and he is king of Salem, which means city of peace. So this, this relationship between righteousness and peace goes out through all of Scripture. So it's not, without, it's not a coincidence that, that Melchizedek is king of Salem and is the one that is recognizing Abram as having won the battle because God 
handed over the enemies to him. All right, that whole providence, that whole provisioning by God. Now, Melchizedek is, is mentioned in a few other places of Scripture. Um, and the, the, like we read in, in Psalms 110 that Melchizedek was the originator of the priesthood. Um, and we saw that the, um, Abram gives to him a tenth of all he has taken. Right, and we think of a tenth. Right, immediately comes to your mind the tithe. Right, that recognition that we give to God a tenth. Um, now we see in Hebrews that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of the king priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is of course far surpassed of all the other priests that are along the way. We read in Hebrews chapter six, verses nineteen and twenty. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Abram is presented with two options. We're going to look at them in reverse order. So the first choice, the king of Sodom says, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. In other words, you can have my stuff, but I want the people. And Abram rejects, saying, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. Again, Abram wants nothing to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, And Abram knows that good fortune comes from the God Most High. And so if he were to take anything from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, then it could be attributed to them that he was successful. And he says, no, I don't want any of your stuff. God's taking care of me, and he wants to make sure that that uh, relationship doesn't get established, that, that Sodom and Gomorrah is providing anything. On the other hand, Melchizedek praises God for the victory and brings out bread and wine to celebrate the victory that God has given Abram. Right? He says, God Most High delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. And he recognizes that Abram is a prophet from God and that is receiving God's blessings. He sees God's working in Abram's life. And Abram again responds by giving Melchizedek one-tenth of all he had, a tithe to the priesthood of the God Most High. Now, the next, in chapter 15, we're going to look at this establishment now of this new covenant that God will make with Abram. And because of Abram, with the whole lineage that follows. And this has some really interesting symbolism that goes on in this. So first of all, uh, let's start at chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am the shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, you've got to put yourself in the mind. Abram just won a battle, took on all these kings, won with 318 people while he lives in tents in a hill. You gotta wonder, Abram's thinking, I hope they're not too mad. Because there's four kingdoms that he just irritated, um, right, by winning this battle. So he has to be concerned that there's gonna be some retaliation. 
that these four kings are not going to take well to the fact that 318 guys routed them and took back everything they had. And so God recognizes that fear and tells him, don't worry, I got this, don't fear. The phrase, the word of the Lord came to Abram, is only used twice in the whole Pentateuch. Once here and once in verse 4 of this part. And it literally identifies Abram as a prophet. You'll see it in later on in the Old Testament. It'll say, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The prophets heard the word of the Lord. So it identifies Abram here as a prophet. And God initiates contact with Abram to ensure him um, that he has done well, that he is listening to what God is saying, and that God will give him a great reward. Now, remember, Abram has no kids. So he's like, what are you going to give me? I don't have any kids. I don't have that blessing that, that we think of as kids. I know there's probably some that go, well, they're kind of a blessing. The, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, so we're verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you are given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abram basically is asking God, what's my reward going to be? I have nothing, I have no one to pass it on to. So I have all this stuff, but I have no one to pass it on to. What's my reward going to be? Now, it's interesting that um, if you look back at the um, history of the time, the context of the time, it was not unusual for someone to adopt a family into their family. And if that adopted family had a child, that child would become a servant of the adopting family, but when they passed, would become their heir. It's called a substitute heir. So if you didn't have any of your own kids, you could adopt a family that was having children, and one of those children would then become your heir. Right? Versus if you had your own child, it would be your direct heir. It was your heir because it's yours. So that's why we have this, this situation right now, um, is that the because Abram has had no children, he adopted the parents of Eleazar of Damascus so that when they had Eleazar, that he would have an heir. Now, God has a different plan. Abram will have a son. And not only will he have a son, but this son will be the father of countless, right? He tells them to look at the stars and count the stars. And we know even with today's light pollution, you can barely count the stars. And because of telescopes, we keep finding stars we didn't even know were there. So clearly it's innumerable, right? More than you can possibly count. That will be your reward. So you've got to think, Abram's thinking, I mean, there's a huge thing. He's, he's just surviving, no kids, and he's being told that he's going to have descendants innumerable, uncountable. But Abram believes the Lord because he knows that God can do and will do 
what he says he'll do. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him who believed, even God, whose life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Right? So Abram has faith in God to bring about what at this point does not exist. Now we hear, we read later, right? Abram is so old as to be as old as dead. Right? He's an old guy. And his wife Sarah, or Sarai, she's not Sarah yet. She'll be Sarah soon. Uh, well, not real soon. But anyway, <laughs> She's also well past childbearing years, right? And yet, God has promised that you will have a child. And we see that God can speak forth those things which don't exist and which don't have to make sense, right? To Abram, he's thinking, you know, he's approaching 100. Sarai is 93, I think, something like that at the time. And they're going to have kid, a kid. Uh, I feel bad for him. How would I have a teenager at 115? The... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, the, the faith in the word of the Lord is accounted to Abram as righteousness. Uh, Romans 4, verses 20 through 22 says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Again, righteousness is the belief that God is capable of doing what he says he will do and that he is willing to do it. Now, again, Abram has plenty of reasons to doubt what God is going to do, right? Unbelief comes easy to us. It's easy to not believe things are going to happen. It's much harder to have faith. Faith fears disappointment, and we tend to hesitate. Especially if we get a word that wants us to do something that maybe is a little scary. Or maybe it puts us in a challenge that we're not ready to make. Right? The same applies throughout Scripture and indeed in our very own lives. When difficulties come, it's easy to assume things will just get worse. But if we have faith and know that God is control, we know that it will be good even though to us at times it does not appear good, what we measure good as. So Abraham has a promise from God. He's powerless to do anything about it. And indeed, he will have to wait quite a while before he actually sees it occur. And that's probably the most difficult part of faith, is waiting. We are not good at waiting. right? We want everything now. We want a promise that shows up tomorrow, right? I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many people like next day delivery, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I hear you. Well, I'm the first to admit we're Amazonaholics. You know, that's when a box shows up and you're not even sure what's in it because you order so many times, you know. All right. So yeah, we all know what it's like. We want it now. We don't want to wait. And yet Abram is going to have to wait a long time to see what God has promised. 
So God has promised that Abraham will not only inherit the land, but will have a son to succeed him, and he believes in him by faith. And the story highlights one of the main truths of the gospel is that faith is central to its message. We can rest on the promises of God because he is faithful and capable of doing all that he promises to do. When we think of covenant, when we think of last will and testament, covenant and testament is the same idea. It's the will of God, right? So Christians know that because we are in Christ, his righteousness is extended to us as it was to Abram, for it is in the, the faith that is the link that causes us to be accepted and blessed in Christ and the promises. Now, this next section we're going to look at is kind of interesting. And it's because you have to understand how covenants were established back in those days. Um, again, very, very different than things we do today. Um, so we're going to kind of dig into this so that you can understand the significance of it. So let's start at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and impressed, oppressed 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On day, that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmites, and the Hittites, and the Parasites, and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, yeah. <laughs> I a lot of guys, a lot of folks are going to go away. So, all right. So we saw in Genesis 8, uh, 21 through 22, God makes a covenant with Noah um, after the flood that he will not again destroy the world. Okay, he's not going to do that again. And in ancient times, a covenant was the most solemn agreement you could make. Um, it was it was like a treaty between parties, but it was an extremely significant event. So the Lord uses this well-known uh, political and social convention, which is the most binding form of agreement between men, to reinforce the certainty of his promise. Now, Whereas the covenant that he makes with Noah establishes that God would not again destroy the earth, this one establishes the new covenant, the promise of salvation. So it's a much more positive, if you will, covenant. Now the treaty in its original form of salvation, the covenant, 
gives us what we call the Old Testament. So when you think of the Old Testament, think of it as the Old Covenant or the Old Promise. And it leads up to what we call the New Testament or the New Promise, the New Will that we know in Jesus Christ. All right, we think of it again in the last will and testament. So when we think of the Old Testament, we transition to the New Testament of Jesus Christ. So in verse 7, he establishes who he is, right? He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, the one who is the I am. Remember when we were studying through um, Exodus, how God established himself to Moses, right? In Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. So he starts this out in verse seven says, I am is who's talking to you. So there's no confusion in Abram's mind who's talking. And then God reminds him, Abram, I'm the God who has led you from Ur of the Chaldeans all the way through this process, all the way where you are now, through the battles. I've led you through all of this. And it's important to remind us that God has done so much for us. I can remember times when I'm thinking, oh, what is going to happen and the thought is, well, he's been there before. He's going to be there again. I have the promises of God to count on because I have the promises that have already been fulfilled. I've seen God work in my life. I shouldn't doubt that he walk again. I remember one time we had this legal thing and I was just up all night. I mean, it was just tearing at you. I don't know if you ever had something like that where you're just thinking, oh. And finally I'm thinking, okay, God, it's yours. Let go, let God. Hey, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's yours. Because I was going crazy. And I say, God, you have been there for every other event in my life. You are not leaving now. I like the words of the hymn. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are dis- and I'm not going to sing it, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Right? When things seem down and you're thinking, what's going to happen next? Get a sheet of paper and start writing what God has done. I'm not a big journaler, but I'll tell you what. When you start getting, just start writing down. Oh, yeah, you did that. Yeah, you did that. You did that. Start writing that stuff down. It will remind you, God does this, all this stuff for you day after day after day. And then you'll take some of the angst when something's happening in your life. Because you know he's been there. I think I made hospital beds I've sat in. Thinking, ah, oh, where are you going now, God? You know, I'm still here. You know, Desiree, what, a, uh, what was our foster kid? She goes, that's amazing. You're really hard to kill. I'm like, <laughs> 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 you know, it, was, it was an exciting year this year. Donna had more medical expenses than I did. <laughs> it was like, woohoo. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a, anyway. So let's talk about this sacrifice. This is kind of odd, right? So. He's got five sacrifices, right? He's got a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. What's with that? Well, we don't know exactly why those animals were chosen. But we, and, and we don't know a lot about the way covenants were made, but we know this. 
What they would do is they would take these animals, split them in two, and make two piles. The Bible calls them heaps. Two piles of these animals. And the people in the treaty would walk between them. And that's how you establish this covenant relationship, was by walking between these two piles. Yeah, I know. Seems kind of odd. Right? But we know that it was very, very significant, um, and that if you breached this covenant relationship established in that method, it would be very bad for you. We read in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 to 20, I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and beasts of the earth. Ooh. So breaking that covenant was a big deal. If you established a covenant in that manner, breaking it was a big deal. Right? Your bodies would be tossed to the animals. So Abram does what he's told to do. He gets the animals, he does everything he's supposed to do, and then he falls into a dark and disturbing uh, sleep where God spells out what is to occur before Abram's descendants will actually inherit the land he's promised. All right? So first they're to become exiles, then slaves in a land not their own. And that's going to take, they're going to be there for 400 years, uh, after which judgment will fall on the land and they will leave with many possessions. And of course he's talking about slavery in Egypt and the, um, the leaving that we you know, read through in Exodus and that whole process. But here's Abram listening to this that's going on. It's going to be 400 plus years before, and that's, remember that, that occurs down the road. We still got, you know, Isaac and, and um, Jacob. We got that, we got a whole lineage that still has to occur before that even starts. So Abram's got this promise, but it's a long way off that he's going to see it done. Right? Now Abram is told that he will die and be buried on a land he does not yet possess. So he does not even have yet, he has not inherited the land that he will in fact be buried on. That time has not yet come. He doesn't have the military strength to occupy it. And the time is yet to come for the judgment to fall on the land. And it's interesting because he brings up the story of the Amorites. Now you remember when we studied Deuteronomy, when they went into the promised land, they, had, they killed off all the Amorites and you felt sorry for the Amorites. But the Amorites had had 800 years to turn to God. And they hadn't. So after 800 years, God finally said, okay, enough's enough. Poof, by Amorites. So he's telling what's going to happen, but this is happening way, way in the future. And then God tells Abram of his own fate, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Um, you will be buried at a good old age. Now, this next piece is really, really interesting. So in the second evening, Abram sees a smoking oven and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Now, if you remember, that's the idea of fire and smoke. So think about fire and smoke. When would we see fire and smoke being significant in the Old Testament? Right? Yeah. Moses, right? Burning bush. We see the people in, in, in Exodus, pillar of fire by night pillar of smoke by day, right? We read about how in the tabernacle, the cloud would descend upon the tabernacle and then they would sit, 
And then the, the cloud would rise and everybody packed their stuff and they'd head off and follow the cloud. So this is super significant that Abram is in this vision seeing this smoking pot and this fire pass between these animals. And even more significant, realize that Abram is an observer. Abram isn't the one walking through. God is. God is establishing the covenant with Abram. Huge significance. Right? Because we understand the curse that's associated with breaking that covenant relationship. And here God walks between the piles and shows to Abram, that is my covenant. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. Now again, we don't understand the exact reason these particular animals are chosen. There's, there's a lot of history involved, etc. But the key here is that sacrifice lay, lays at the base of a covenant. Sacrifice is fundamental to a covenant relationship. The Lord cut a covenant with Abram that day using the most solemn form of oath to ensure the certainty of the fulfillment of his word to your descendants, I will give this land. So Abram is singled out and blessed in a very special way. He is to be the father of his people, but will see very little fulfillment of that promise. He and his wife are childless and great in years. There could hardly be any greater distance between the current circumstance that Abram is in and the promise that he is given. The distance between those two realities is hard to fathom. But faith requires testing if it is to grow. I tell people faith is like a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it doesn't grow. And it can only be exercised when you focus on the unseen because it vanishes vanishes when the object of faith materializes and God provides, proves faithful. So you put your faith in what God promises. When he delivers, you have his promise. You have fulfillment of his promise. And you have strengthening of your faith. The point of this exercise is to trust God because he has promised. And to act on his word because there is external evidence that he will do as he has said. We see in God the eternal promises fulfilled over and over again. It is faith in God's word that salvation is granted. It is faith in Jesus Christ that God requires. We read in Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 29, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The covenant relationship established with Abram carries all the way through to to the relationship, the covenant relationship we have today in Jesus Christ. So it was with anticipations of Christ's life, death, 
and resurrection that Abram received such blessing. And under the instruction of Jesus Christ, we learn that Abram and indeed ourselves have eternal life. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the belief of Abram. For he trusted in you when there was so little to assure him that your promise could be fulfilled. And he waited many, many years to see even the beginning of your promise bear fruit. The birth of his son Isaac to his wife Sarah. And yet know that it was hundreds of years since before the tribes of Israel were able to take possession of the land you promised. Pray, Lord, to give us all that kind of faith, to anchor ourselves to the rock of your truth, to be able to hang on to you during the storms and the struggles and the things that frustrate us and the, this, the, the world around us, Lord, knowing that you are in charge. You are the God of the promise. You are the God of the covenant. And we rest in the fact that we trust in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.